Well, I invite you this morning to grab your Bible and turn to Psalm 91. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find them in the pew in front of you under the seats. It's about halfway into the Bible. You're looking for the book of Psalms. 150 Psalms, and we're looking uh, this morning at Psalm number 91. Psalm 91. I'll read that for us. God's Word says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge." No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's just have a brief uh, prayer to ask God to bless us in our study. And then I meant also to pray for those who are away. Uh, It's spring break. There's a lot of people who are traveling. So um, we'll pray for them for a minute as well. Let's pray. Dear Lord and awesome God, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would open up our hearts. Please remove the distractions and the sins that might hinder us from hearing what you would have to say to us. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Show us more of Christ. And Father, we pray also for those um, who are traveling this week as it's spring break, a lot of people who are away. Um, And Father, we pray for for, uh, safety on the roads and safety in whatever activities are going on. Um, it's for a lot of people a time uh, of enjoyment, of maybe spending time with family or uh, doing some more touristy kind of things. Lord, we thank you for these times of rest. But we pray also for your protection, that you would bring uh, all these folks back safely again. So Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well... <clears throat> It was John Owen in 1670 who said, this is an overwhelming time. It was a trying time for the churches in England. Charles II had been reinstated, and many of the church leaders who had supported his overthrow and exile were booted out of their churches. Because of the Act of Uniformity in 1662, Over 2,000 ministers were kicked out of their churches. Over 2,000. 
In the United Reformed Church, I don't think hardly has 200. It's almost unfathomable. Men who were faithful to God's word and who would not bow to the imposition of the Anglican Church. In 1665, the great bubonic plague broke out, and in just under a year, over 100,000 people died in London alone. And then in 1666, there was the Great Fire of London, which incinerated nearly a third of the city. And of course, this all follows on the heels of years of civil war in Britain. goes without saying, those were overwhelming times. Well, thank God that for most of us, we have not seen such disastrous things. Many of us really have lived lives of relative ease and peace in a lot of ways compared to many centuries past and compared to many people in our world. We should praise God for that. Nevertheless, at the same time, you and I have our own fears and concerns. Sometimes the trials of this world and of this life can overwhelm us, flood over us. We can experience times when you and I also feel overwhelmed. The sickness of children or parents or spouses, when, our, when we have our own health concerns, struggles of the mind, maybe significant battles with temptations to sin, uncertain political or economic stability, wars in distant countries, significant accidents, death of a loved one. These things at times can make us feel overwhelmed, can't they? But what do we do? What do we do when those trials hit. Well, our text this morning urges us to go to the one who can save, to put our trust in the God who alone is able to deliver, to run to the cross. Because there, in Jesus' death, in what Walter Chantry called the shadow of the cross, there at Calvary, you and I find shelter from the storms of life. And in the bright rays of Easter morning, you and I are given that Hope of the life eternal. We're called this morning to hold fast to God in love, to trust in Him for salvation, and then to find in the shadow of the cross a God who is indeed a refuge and a fortress. And maybe this morning, if you're not a Christian, this is a message that you need to hear. It is a message of hope, but it's a reminder to lay hold of Christ, to go to Him maybe for the first time, Because apart from him, there is no hope to be found anywhere in the world. So our theme is simply those who put their trust in Christ, find in him deliverance and salvation. Well, as we look at our text, you might have noticed a couple of things. First, as we read through this psalm, you maybe notice that the author oscillates easily between different voices. And in our text, we have three particular voices. The main human character, we'll just call him the psalmist. There's a narrator, and then there's God himself who speaks. And just a a quick note, it's important to know as you read through the Psalms, a lot of times the author can very easily move between who is speaking and who is being addressed. It's just good Hebrew poetry, but we see that in our psalm, and it's good to take note of. You might also have noticed there's no superscript on a lot of Psalms. You get a little superscript that might tell us something of the setting, the historical background, who wrote it, why. This one has no such thing. The best educated guess, if you will, from commentators is that 
It seems like a king in battle, in a prolonged warfare. It might even be David himself. The short of it, we don't know. We don't know the original setting. But what we do see as we read this is that the psalmist himself is facing overwhelming times. It seems like he's getting hammered from every direction with trials and troubles. We read in those first verses, though, in the face of that, the psalmist, his confession, what we read is, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. In the middle of all the struggles, God is his shelter, his shadow. God, he says, is my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The Bible shows us here a person who's cast himself completely on the mercy of God, who's entrusted himself to God for safekeeping. He's not trusting in his own strength. God's his fortress. He's not trusting in his military power, his own ingenuity, his own pedigree, his money, social connections, job security, none of these things. Those same things that you and I can so easily be tempted to trust in. His trust is in God. The Christian entrusts him or herself to God in life and in death. This God He is called in our text, Elyon, which in our translation here is Most High. That is, the God who is above all other powers, the God who is above all other gods. He's called in Psalm 83, it's said of him, that Yahweh, the Lord, he is the Most High over all the earth. He's called Almighty, Almighty the all-knowing, the all-powerful God, the God who protected Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who protected the Israelites and their wandering through the desert. He's called Yahweh, Lord in our translation, which means he is the covenant God who binds himself in unbreakable union to his people. And he is also that personal God. We could even reshape this a little bit and and put it in the form of a a taunt, maybe. The psalmist could say, I'm not sure what your gods are all busy with. Gods of the ancient world, Moloch, Baal, Osiris. But my God, I trust in him. He is my refuge. And the challenge is the same for us and for for our world. What do you trust in? What does our world trust in? Sports, economics, business, financial security, medicine, whatever it might be. Our challenge is to trust in the Lord. Well, what kind of troubles is this psalmist facing here? We see verse 3. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. That's the narrator speaking there. Well, a fowler is just simply a bird catcher. In the ancient days, we know from archaeology, there were a number of different ways of catching birds. You could set up an upright net the birds would be driven into there. You could lay a circular net on the ground with bait in it. Birds would be lured in, and then the, the fowl or the bird catcher could pull the string and catch the birds. Same kind of thing uh, could be used with uh, bow-shaped sticks, and then all of a sudden the net would, <clears throat> net would clamp shut like a clam. 
Well, it goes without saying, it would be a pretty dramatic experience for the bird. But in the imagery here, God delivers the believer from the trap. Delivers them also from deadly pestilence. And so I think we see here, at least in part, that behind the snare, the bird trap, you see creaturely evil devices. But then you also see in the pestilence that there are natural dangers. That there are evil, malicious intents in this world, but also living in a broken, sin-cursed world, there are natural effects as well. Verse 4, He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. I don't know if you've ever seen a mother bird protecting her chicks from danger. Um, I've heard it told where a hen uh, fended off two cobras to protect her chicks. I've seen it where, uh, where a hawk flew into the hen coop, tried to get the, the chicks, but the mother bird chased, it, chased the hawk out of there without a meal and with the most terrified um, look on its face. Well, it's quite a, a remarkable picture here, and the word that is used uh, to cover with pinions can have the meaning of to make inaccessible. Think if you're that little bird. The mother's wing is like an iron curtain that no evil can pass through. It protects you from the harsh elements and it protects you from predators. But then God's protection is also, we're told, like a mighty shield. God is a faithful God and He doesn't ignore His people. But in His faithfulness, He protects the one who trusts in Him. And so we see God's protection both with the tenderness of a mother bird, but then also with the ironclad strength of a warrior's shield. Then in verses 5 and 6, we see there a couple of merisms. What's a merism? Well, if you're married or if you hope to be married sometime, often in wedding vows, we have a merism or a couple of merisms. We say things like, for better, for worse for richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health. That is, A and Z and everything in between. And so here, from night terror to the daytime arrow, from the pestilence of darkness to the noonday destruction and all of the dangers in between, God is your shelter. And you have nothing to fear. A thousand might fall at your side. 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Thousands could be dropping beside you like flies. It's kind of a, a legendary hyperbolic deliverance here. Thousands on your left, 10,000s on your right. The person here in the psalm finds himself in the middle of a pretty frightful scene. Traps are set around him. Arrows are flying past. And we see the gleaming eyes of the adversaries behind those. Sickness lurks around every corner like an assassin. Death and danger on all sides. And yet, verse 5 and verse 7, you will not fear. These dangers will not come near you. You have nothing to fear if your trust is in God. Verse 8 and verse 10, again, show us that there are these malicious, creaturely evils at work in the world, but then also these natural, inanimate dangers as a result of the fallen creation. 
Through it all, the Bible says that God is the great protector. We might not be facing the same things that are experienced here in the text, but I think that you and I can all understand the need for protection. We live in a dangerous world in a lot of ways. And so that's why we pay for software to protect our computer from getting hacked. We're careful who we give our credit card info to. We lock our houses and our cars. We take our vitamins, our supplements, or whatever else. Parts of the U.S. We conceal carry. I doubt in Indiana. Uh, But we train our anti-air, anti-nuclear missile defense systems at the sky. We want protection. We need protection. And we can feel sometimes as though there are dangers all around us. And indeed, from a biblical perspective, there are. There's those harmful things that might attack our bodies, might attack our families, sickness, disease. There are evil people who might want to take advantage of us, for example. And of course, the devil. The devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to tear apart. And then death, that last enemy. That enemy that, even if we're delivered from multiple illnesses, that last enemy that you and I all must finally face. Now don't mishear me. There are a lot of beautiful things in this world, and God does bless us often in remarkable ways. We don't want to miss that, but we're following the tenor of our text here, uh, which shows us a lot, of, a lot of darkness. Well, now you, again, might not have bird traps lying outside your door as you leave. You might not have arrows whizzing past your head or, or bullets. I hope not. Um, but we all face those evils that are in our world. The devil himself is firing darts at us every day, trying to bring us down, trying to destroy your faith, my faith. We're under constant attack often. The devil's trying to destroy our ministry, our marriage, our friendships, our career, whatever else, but ultimately trying to lead us away from Christ. Maybe sometimes it feels as though people around us are dropping like flies. Sickness all around us, heart attacks, cancer. Children get cancer and other illnesses. Um, My wife and I just recently heard of of a young man, 18 years old, working in a grain elevator, lost his footing and fell to his death. These things are all around us, aren't they? But the poetical irony of our text is that it might feel like thousands are falling all around us, but for the evil... For the the psalmist, no evil will fall on him. Why? Because again, verse 9, reiterating those opening verses, you have made the Lord your dwelling place the most high, who is my refuge. And then verses 11 through 13, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample Underfoot. Well, in ancient Mesopotamian uh, culture, it was common to talk about how the gods would send guardian angels. I'm not convinced that this text necessarily is telling that God gives each of us a guardian angel, but talking about angels, we can think about Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Matthew 18, of course, 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What a beautiful text. Hebrews 1. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So we, we can say confidently that God does indeed command his own personal attendance to watch over his people. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. And in our psalm, God's commanded his angels to guard the psalmist in all of his ways, to carry him in, in their arms so that he wouldn't even strike his toe against a rock. Well, of course, ancient Palestine, you remember, you're out and about, you don't exactly have a nice pair of Timberland steel-toed boots, let alone Nike closed-toe shoes. You could easily stub your toe. And not to mention the dangers of animals that you'll encounter. Palestine has quite a number of venomous snakes. And even today still, with medicine and anti-serums, there are people who die from snake bites. One of the most notorious snakes is the Palestinian viper, guilty of about 300 bites per year. And one of my favorite places in the world is Ecuador, in the coastal regions of Ecuador. Well, one time I was there with my wife, we were dating at the time, and we went for a walk, and unwisely on our part, we left kind of late in the afternoon. And so by the time we were heading back to the house, the sun was gone. My wife started to get pretty agitated and nervous. I said, well, why? I said, well, this is the time of the day that the vipers are most active. That's nerve-wracking. We, did, we had, I think, just flip-flops. Thankfully, we had a flashlight, and so we're carefully walking along the trail, shining the light, walking very slowly, lest we step on a viper or step within reach of one. Needless to say, snakes can be very dangerous. And, well, what about the king of beasts, the mighty feared lion? His roar can turn a man's heart to ice, as it were. You can go to the museum in Chicago and you can see the two man-eating lions of Savo, who over a nine-month period killed some, maybe, maybe 35 folks in Uganda. Today, still, lions kill dozens of people. But, verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Poetical irony is that with God protecting you, your foot will not strike a stone Your foot will instead tread down, trample the lion and the snake. Well, this is where we need to pause. We need to consider for a moment Jesus Christ as the ultimate head crusher. The one who crushes the serpent and the lion. Because verses 11 and 12, if you're familiar with your Bible, you might have noticed they're familiar. The devil uses those words in Luke 4, in the third temptation of Christ. Luke 4. If you'll look at Psalm 91, I'll read for us those words in Luke 4. We read there that the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. Would have been a very far drop. Anybody who would have jumped off of there would have crashed to smithereens and the rocks below. Then the devil says to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. For it is written. And then he he quotes this. Notice Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. 
He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's an exact quote. And you know, this, the scary thing about the devil is that he knows God's word. And in a sense, shame on us because, you know, for many of us, we often don't even remember what the order of the books of the Bible are, let alone what's in them. But the devil here quotes the scriptures directly. His temptation is, come on, Jesus. You don't really believe that you're living under God's shadow protection, do you? I mean, if you are, go ahead, cast yourself down. You're the son of God. God will protect you. It's interesting. The devil himself realized Psalm 91 was ultimately about Christ. The devil knew that. Psalm 91 is ultimately about Christ. So he says, if you're really the son of God, throw yourself down. God will protect you, won't he? But you know, the biggest blunder maybe of, of quoting a text is perhaps this one. It's common practice of liberal theologians and of atheists to rip a text out of context and not pay attention to what else is around it. And so the real question is, why didn't the devil quote more? What did he leave out? What did he leave out? Maybe for the devil, who's that liar and deceiver who twists the Scriptures, maybe Psalm 91 verse 13 just wasn't quite convenient for him. And so he quotes verses 11 and 12. But maybe verse 13 just sounds a little too much like Genesis 3 verse 15, where the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Because you see, it's no coincidence that the devil in Scripture is called a serpent. He's called a lion. Psalm 91 is indeed ultimately about Jesus Christ. And ultimately, it is fulfilled in his life and his ministry. Jesus trampled down that ancient enemy, the devil. He crushed him underfoot. He did that at Calvary. Christ's heel was bruised. But in that moment that the devil thought he had sunk his teeth into our Lord and dealt the decisive blow, it was the reverse. It was Jesus Christ who triumphed over the dragon, over the serpent, over the lion, putting to shame the forces of darkness when he died on the cross. Jesus trampled down Satan, and he destroyed death at the same time. And now Jesus, of course, reigns in heaven as the victorious conqueror, Jesus the serpent crusher. And the only place where you and I truly find deliverance in this world is beneath the shadow of the cross of Christ. That is the only place where we can truly and ultimately find refuge from all the storms of this world. But then notice the last closing verses of our psalm and how beautiful they are. We read, verse 14, because he holds me fast in love, I will deliver him. This is God speaking. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. These eight things, these eight promises here that God speaks are spoken ultimately to Christ. You and I forget God. This is not our confession. We fail in this. Day after day, we, tr we trust ourselves and our own strength. But Jesus trusted resolutely in his Father. 
And even in that cry of dismay from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment still, he was entrusting himself to his father. And what did he say with his dying breath? Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And then what happened? God did deliver him. God delivered him, ultimately protected him, rescued him. The Father was to Christ a shelter, a refuge, a fortress. We see here the pattern of Christ's humiliation. We'll be talking about this tonight in our sermon. Christ's humiliation, but then exaltation. How he went down that bitter road to the cross, but then God raised him up. So that at the name of Jesus, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Christ as Lord. But then, even though Jesus endured those fiery trials of the cross, he was given, the psalmist says, with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. What is that? Long life, a.k.a. eternal life. And this, my friends, is all for you, for me. Because through Christ then, God offers that same to us. Because of that road that Christ himself traveled, you and I can run to the cross. You and I can find shelter there through the storms of life. And we find a Savior who has dealt that decisive blow to the devil. And even though Satan is still allowed to tempt us, by God's sovereignty, he's still given certain powers and freedoms in this world, he's been dealt that final blow. Christ He endured those deep waters of the cross, the agonies of Golgotha for you and for me because God loved us. Well, as we close, brothers and sisters, we can note a couple of things. God may indeed deliver you physically. He might very well deliver you from things like accidents, illness, evil intents of other humans. God is a powerful God. We can't forget that. He might miraculously save you even from death. In my own experience, I really believe the Lord has spared my life no less than three times. And I know many of you here today have your own testimonies of how God has delivered you. But what if God does not deliver you physically? What if he doesn't deliver you physically in this world? And I mean, the reality is, even if he were to do so at times, you and I, again, we ultimately all face that final enemy, death itself. But does that mean that God has failed you as a refuge? Does that mean that his strong shield of protection has been shattered? It wasn't good enough to protect you? The answer, of course, is a resounding no. Because if you and I can have that confession of the psalmist, that I have trusted in God as my salvation, that I hold fast to Christ in love, Jesus is my shelter and refuge, and I live in the shadow of of his cross. If that's your confession, if that's your confession, the Bible says that God will satisfy you with long life, with the eternal life that is given through the resurrection of Christ. So my friends, I have to ask you, do you know what it is to confess that, to call out, God is my refuge? Do you know what it is to dwell daily in the shadow of the cross? Do you know what it is to say, Jesus Christ is my only comfort in life and in death. Maybe you've forgotten this. Well, the Scriptures urge us today to run back to Christ, to go back to Him, put our trust and our love in Him for deliverance and for life. 
Because there at the foot of the cross, your sins are covered over and you are given shelter from the wrath of God against the sins that we deserve to pay for. The man on the cross is your only hope for entrance into heaven and his blood is what can take away all of your sins. And so if you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted in Christ, think about this message. Because the Bible says that Christ is the only salvation in all the world. There is no other hope outside of him. And when you face the troubles and the trials of life, you have no hope if you yourself are not grounded in Christ. So if you don't believe in Jesus, then I urge you, put your faith in him. And so firstly, we can trust God for deliverance. He is able to trust. He is able to deliver us. We need to believe that and not be surprised when it happens. But then this also applies to temptations. When you and I are tempted to sin, we must also run to Calvary. Because there, as we see our Savior who bled and died for us, how can we go on sinning when we realize at what a great cost our own salvation was bought? And so in the moment of temptation also, run to Christ. But then we also have to say that we may very well face significant difficulties Let me read you what Paul said to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11. This is a bit of a dynamic translation, but this is what Paul says. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked harder and longer, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Even the Apostle Paul suffered greatly. But earlier in the letter, in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, this is also what he said. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Even Paul and his companions were ready to throw in the towel. They felt so overwhelmed. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will again deliver us. That's why Paul also writes to the Romans in Romans 8, Can anything separate us from the love of God in Christ? No, nothing. Not persecution, famine, sword, nakedness. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. You trust in him. What a beautiful, beautiful message the scripture has for us. But then lastly, this final point. Christ again has indeed defeated Satan and all the evil of the world. He crushed the head of the serpent and through his cross offers us eternal life. But do you know, you and I actually share then in the victory of Christ. In Ecuador, there is a famous statue. It's called La Virgen del Panecillo. It's set on top of a hill in the capital city. You can see it for miles around. 
It's kind of similar to the statute south of here on 41. But La Virgen del Panecillo, she is standing with her foot on the snake. And she is holding in her hand a chain that is on the snake's neck. That, of course, is a picture of Mary and the serpent. And that is blasphemous. That is absolutely blasphemous. The Bible does not say that Mary is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. It is not the woman, but it is the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, and him alone. But there is still a beautiful grain of truth in that. In that Mary, and in that you and I, insofar as we believe in Jesus, are partakers of the victory of Christ. So that Paul can say to the Romans in chapter 16, God will actually finally crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that amazing? By faith in Christ, we share in his victory over the devil, over all of the evil of the world, that we will one day reign with him as kings. So, beloved, whatever overwhelming difficulties you face today, whatever temptations the devil might Uh, be attacking you with, hide yourself under the protective wings of God's love. Hold fast to Christ in love. In Him, you and I are victorious. In Him, you're more than conquerors because He is that great serpent crusher for every soul that lives in the shadow of the cross of our Savior. Join me in prayer. Dear Lord and Almighty God, Lord, as we think about this text, we, we praise you for the hope that it gives us, that Christ offers us eternal life through what he has done on the cross. Lord, help each person here to confess that our only comfort in life and in death is that we've been purchased with the purchased body and soul by Jesus' blood. Help us to find shelter in the shadow of his cross, knowing that it's he who has ultimately paid fully for all of our sins with his own precious blood. Help us to know that he's delivered us from the devil's tyranny by triumphing over him at Calvary. And that he watches over us like a shepherd so that without your fatherly will, not a single hair can fall from our head. Lord, give us this assurance by your Holy Spirit that even when we face overwhelming difficulties in this life, we can know with full confidence we have eternal life in Jesus' name. Lord, help us then, Holy Father, by your Spirit to live wholeheartedly to Christ today and forever. And we pray that if there are those among us who do not yet know Christ, Lord, that you would prick their hearts and consciences to see that there is no life outside of our Savior. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.